Success is about more than just business strategies. It's also about aligning with your higher purpose and clearing inner obstacles that stand in the way. I say this because you deserve to do what you love and to feel fulfilled along the way. And the reality is you're likely spending more time than you'd like to stuck in self-doubt. You may be asking yourself things like, why do I never seem to reach my biggest goals no matter how hard I work? Or why do I never quite feel like I've done enough, have enough, or am enough? If any of these sound familiar, you are not alone. And I've been there too. The good news is that the solution is simpler than you think. I'm sharing it inside my new four-day women's immersion, The Inner Critic Cure. This live four-day event includes daily classes, potent practices, and a brilliant supportive community of like-minded women. And best of all, it's only $37. This method is gentle yet powerful, and it actually works even when others haven't because it's based on a proven psychotherapeutic framework called Internal Family Systems or IFS. By the time you leave, you'll have the knowledge and tools to not only heal your relationship with those harsh inner voices, but to turn them into your strongest allies now and for the rest of your life. So join us to discover how to put an end to those negative voices that have held you back from your biggest dreams and desires. So you can live into the full potential you know is possible for you in both your business and in your life. You can learn more and join us inside the Inner Critic Cure at programs-saravonstover.com forward slash immersion. That's programs-saravonstover.com forward slash immersion. I'd love to see you there. Hi, I'm Sarah Avon Stover, host of Truth, Love, and Beauty. I'm an author, internal family systems practitioner, and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality, who's built a long career since the early 2000s to be exact, in supporting women to cultivate greater psycho-spiritual wholeness and, in turn, to come home to themselves. My dedication to women and to the upliftment of the feminine at large has been a lifelong one. From growing up as the second oldest of four sisters in a Connecticut suburb of New York City, to studying at an Ivy League all-women's college, all the way up to today. And the very things I support women with mirror the struggles that I've had. Things like doubting, pushing, perfecting, hating, and yes, at times, even hurting myself. Yet I've found, and I have a sense that because you're here, you have too, that these very wounds and pain points can become openings for profound healing, growth, and spiritual insight. I created this podcast in service of honoring just this, this sacred healing journey that we women are on. It was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations with leading thinkers and luminaries about all facets of the feminine spiritual journey. Plus, this podcast highlights three of the core values we must embrace on the feminine path, truth, love, and beauty. 
values which we all need more of during this tumultuous time in history. I'm so happy you're here. Let's dive in. Here we are in July, and it's time to shift gears a bit from our focus the past couple of months on internal family systems to now look at the various metamorphoses that we women move through over the course of our entire lives, culminating in menopause, or rather, I think more accurately, it culminates in death, but really the the last living transition that we make is, is menopause. To take us deeper into this conversation, I've invited Susan Wilson, a certified nurse midwife with 45 years of experience guiding all phases of women's health. She has spent the last 20 years working exclusively with women in the menopausal transition and practices in the Hudson Valley of New York. Her new book, Making Sense of Menopause, Harnessing the Power and Potency of Your Wisdom Years, helps us to positively reframe this powerful time of our lives. It explores the falsehoods we have absorbed as women from the medical community and the larger culture and offers a look into the deep sea change happening at this time in our lives. One of my clients let me know about Susan's book, and I find its perspective very thought-provoking and wise. And please note, this is not just a book or a conversation for women in or past menopause. It is truly for women of all ages. The more we get in touch with the season of life that we're in and know where we're headed, the more gracefully we will be able to navigate this big transition. Susan and I discuss why the cultural narrative about menopause being something we need to fix is so dangerous, how this time in a woman's life is a real crossroads, why understanding earlier transitions in our lives as women will better help us navigate menopause, the role stress plays in all of this, midlife course corrections, and arriving at the archetype of the wise woman. So this is a rich conversation that I hope will illuminate some new things for you about your own journey and about the arc of a woman's life at large. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Susan. Hi. It's good to have you here with us. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. And we always start our conversations with a personal check-in. So I'd love for you to share with us where you're joining us from today, as well as how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind. Hmm. I'm talking to you from the Hudson Valley in New York. Um, Body, a little tired. It's been a busy week. Um, Heart is very full right now. I'm just um, very aware right now of the human condition, everything going on in the world. And what we what we're seeing and sometimes wondering why we can't do better (laughs) my mind though is peaceful uh we had a big thunderstorm come through this night that kind of washed everything clean and i'm looking out on a spring day today one of the first so it's quiet and clear here Mm, it's just a beautiful part of the world that you're in Mm. 
Yeah, I'm from the East Coast originally, so I, I just have a sense of that East Coast beginning of spring feeling. It's a nice mm-hmm. feeling. Yes, it is. Long awaited this year. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned kind of the heavy heartedness that, you know, so many of us are feeling around the state of the world. And one of the questions I've been asking at the start of these conversations for the past two years since the pandemic started, and while the pandemic is lessening now, we have other factors of uncertainty and distress coming in. And I'd love for you to share with us just any specific objects, things, mindsets, activities that have been helping you to really stay resourced during these times? Yeah, um, for me, it's kind of not giving in to polarization and remembering that I don't live my life on the 24-hour news cycle. Um, There's such efforts, it seems to me, in the virtual world today to polarize us and I like to remember that I live here with my community and the people that I can see and touch. Um, When something happens in your community, if there's like a flood or someone loses their home to fire or something, we all just get out there and stand shoulder to shoulder with each other and, and do what needs to be done. We don't ask what political party someone supports or whether or not they chose to get vaccinated. I mean, all the things that people are being polarized around right now, we just do the work together. And I see this as a real issue these days that in the virtual world, we're so easily manipulated into seeing our fellow humans as the other. So um, I, don't live on the news cycle. I will find out things if I need to. And I'm certainly aware of what's happening. I lobby and I'm aware of it, but I don't spend my time glued to it. If you know what I mean, I try to get my information from what I can see and touch and feel that's around me because that's what's real to me. Having an abortion is a potentially life-changing experience, after which women are provided little to no support. It's time for us to change this. Whether you had your abortion three days or 30 years ago, whether you feel relieved or diseased about your choice, whether or not you kept your decision a secret, I've created a home study program called the Abortion Healing Kit to be an intimate companion to help you make meaning of your experience and integrate it into your life going forward. To do this, I offer exercises and tools from the internal family systems model, journaling, mindfulness meditation, inquiry ritual, yin yoga, recommended resources for deeper study, and holistic self-care practices. Through this, you're invited to welcome and digest all aspects of your experience to arrive at a place of inner peace. When we don't do this healing work, it often comes back to haunt us in much more damaging ways later on in life. This could look like health problems, fear of intimacy, relationship strain, anxiety and depression, addiction, or something else. 
By the end of this self-paced journey that includes over a dozen hours of audio and video teachings, you'll have confidence in your capacity to grow stronger, not weaker, because of your challenges. This is a project that's very close to my heart and that I've been working on for many years, and I'm happy to say it's finally available. To learn more or to get it for yourself, head to womensyogateachertraining.com forward slash abortion kit. That's womensyogateachertraining.com forward slash abortion kit. And now back to today's conversation. I've been here for about 29 years now, by far the longest I've lived anywhere. And what, what do you feel has allowed you to create such or be part of such a sense of community there? Because I, I feel like that's something that so many of us are missing and longing for, especially as, as life is getting more challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm lucky, first of all, in the work that I do. Um, I meet different people through my work. I'm able to get deep with them when we do meet. And in terms of the community itself, uh, there's a large agricultural community here, a lot of small farms, um, people that tend to work together in a network. And uh, many years ago, um, the Transition Towns movement came through and there were folks that uh, came together with a distinct um, intention of setting up viable communities, self-sustaining community, local economy, things like that. And we also have a holistic health um, organization here that provides free alternative care for people, you know, regardless of income, there's no cost to it. You just pay it forward and providers volunteer their time. So it really is a lovely community and I felt very grateful to be a part of it for sure. Mm. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that. And just speaking of, you know, you mentioned that part of that sense of community is doing this and just doing deep work with people. And we're here today to talk more about that work, uh, specifically your new book, um, newish book, Making Sense of Menopause harnessing the power and potency of your wisdom years. And you've been working with women going through the menopausal transition for a couple of decades now. And as an, as a nurse midwife, can you share with us how, why, when you decided to shift your focus from supporting women through the transition into motherhood through birth? to focusing on the transition into elderhood through menopause? Sure. Um, One thing that I really love about the work that I do is that there's so many places you can enter it from and make it new. I mean, birth is pretty basic on some level. You know, we all get here the same way. Um, I actually started out in the 70s interested in women's empowerment. That's when we were all looking at our own cervixes and trying to figure out what was going on down there and taking our bodies back, that sort of thing. 
And then as I moved further into my work, I became very fascinated with um, infant consciousness and what we know in the womb and how we get from there to here. And in another phase of my life, I was interested in, in taking birth back for women, reclaiming that. And then well woman care. So there's been a lot that, um, that it has been for me. And as I began to approach menopause myself, I kind of dug in to learn more about that and also to look at the emotional transformational part of this time of life that I was experiencing and that I was seeing the women that I worked with experience. And as you just mentioned, I've been doing that exclusively for about 20 years now. Mm. And it seems like it's just a population, which we'll talk more about, that is not really supported in our medical system, in our mainstream culture, and just how beautiful that you are, that you're offering that support and writing a book about it to, to raise awareness around it. And, you know, one of, one of your central premises is that instead of buying into the larger cultural perspective that menopause is something to be fixed, you instead frame it as a crossroads that we as women come to. And I'm wondering just what are, what are some of the things that a woman might encounter at this crossroad and what, what happens if she pursues the different directions there? Yeah, our biological lives as women are really a continuum, literally from womb to tomb. Uh, the earliest things from the gene sequencing that happens in the egg that will eventually become us through our becoming either male or female in the womb and then moving into the messages about our bodies that we take in and our early sexual experiences, whether we're supported as we become women going from girlhood to womanhood, all of this builds one stage on the next and it, it's all connected and it brings us to menopause and all of these things affect the kind of menopause that we'll have. Um, one thing I've seen over and over is that women either have, a, have it in them at that point to choose to become present and authentic at this point in time in their life and move forward and thrive or begin to diminish, fade away, which is kind of why I see it as a crossroads. And it has a lot to do with the cultural message that a woman's life is over at menopause because her reason for being culturally um, is tied to reproduction, to looking good, and that is beginning to pass away. And so many women feel this just as a time of loss. They're looking back over their shoulder um, at everything they won't be anymore in their own minds and that makes it difficult for them to embrace the next thing um, and culturally women 
have been subtly shamed most of our lives. And so we buy this, at least in my generation, we do. And I'm happy to say that this is somewhat less so among my daughter's cohorts, but it's not absent by any means. The cultural messages, the religious messages, the medical messages mostly tell us that this is a time of diminishment. Yeah, and interesting that that your daughter's cohort is experiencing that less. That's encouraging. It is. Yeah. Although it's yeah, it is still there. The undercurrents are still there. But um, we do have we do have more information now. Yeah. And we're we're starting to demand more information, which I find wonderful. I mean, certainly my mother, uh, they didn't know much, even and in my grandmother's generation, a lot of women were still being institutionalized because people didn't understand menopause and where some of the symptoms came from and the changes came from. And rather than there being a curiosity to explore that, they just wanted to get away from it in a sense. I mean, medicine by and large has not been that interested in women, Mm -hmm. even if they are, you know, studying drugs or doing experiments or looking at how things affect people up until very recently, all of those studies were done on white males. So um, a woman at this time of life can even go in to see a medical practitioner because of the perimenopausal symptoms that she is experiencing. And because our Western medicine is so focused on pathology and symptoms and fixing symptoms, she'll often like have panels and panels of blood work and tests run and things like that to follow each symptom down to see, you know, what might be causing this. And at the end of it, you know, they kind of wave the papers in front of her and go, all your tests are normal. There's nothing wrong. And she leaves still having no information. No one having even recognized what's going on with her because many of the symptoms that we experience in perimenopause or menopause at any other time of life might be symptoms of something being wrong. But at this time of life, they're really not. It's just part of the transition. Yes, and, and you write about that transition, that it's it's a hormonal transition. And it's you you write about how the hormones are a catalyst for metamorphosis, both or not only in menopause, but also at other uh, transitional moments in a woman's life. And in the beginning of the book, you write hormones literally change us into different beings. And you devote certain areas of the book to our time in utero, our time when we began menstruating, perimenopause, and then menopause. Can you share with us more about this, about this, this, um, the role of hormones in, in our transformation? Sure. Um, It's a little bit of a trite metaphor, but it's so apt here. I can't help but bring it up that of the caterpillar and the butterfly, because they have 100% exactly the same DNA. But if you didn't know that, 
you would assume that they're very different creatures. They look different, they act different, have different longings, different destinies, things that they're moving toward. Yet the only thing that separates them is that time in the chrysalis when they're kind of melted down into mush and reformed. And that's very similar in terms of what happens to us during our hormonal transitions. I mean, when you think of it, a latent girl and a fertile woman are two very different things. And echoes of one live in the other, but they're different. And then during a pregnancy, we're literally transformed into beings that can grow another human from scratch on our extras, <laughs> then make milk to nurture that being through until survival. And at menopause, it's similar. We're being transformed into evolutionary agents. The um, part of that is the way that different hormones, when they surge, you know, hit different parts of the brain. And uh, that's certainly happening at menopause. The estrogen that runs our menstrual cycle and our fertility years, the estradiol, stimulates the part of the brains that make us want to make babies and nurture everything in sight and scan men for their genetic potential when they walk in the room, even if we're happily partnered, you know, that's biology in action. Um, it also kind of puts us in a hormonal trance that allows us to be sometimes like the doormat for our families. We're so um, stimulated to be nurturing that quite often we're taking care of all kinds of things. And then you get to menopause and the estradiol levels are falling and estriol, which is another estrogen in our bodies rises and that estrogen hits the creative centers of our brain. So now we're being impulsed to go out and start that business, dance that dance, paint that painting, write the book, whatever it is that our creativity is asking of us. Not to say these things are not present in some ways in all periods of life, but the hormonal shift really is changing us into something different. And in fact, um, you know, social anthropologists tell us that when women first started living past their reproductive years into what we would now call the menopausal years, that that's when. Um, human beings really started to evolve. They went through an evolutionary leap because, you know, back then everything was about survival. So mothers were growing babies and nursing them. And then as soon as they were pregnant with the next one, they had to divert their resources and attention to the next child. So the toddlers then were more at risk. And once there were grandmothers, um, they could gather more food, they could nurture these toddlers into longer life. And they also had the long view of their tribe. So they held the stories, they held the myths, and they were able to pass these on too, which woke up a whole different part of the brain. So yes, I really do see us as being um, turned into different creatures with different biological intentions at each stage.
I really, yeah, I really want to emphasize that you, know, you said hormone, the hormones are changing us into something different. And that the metaphor of the caterpillar turning into the butterfly, and we all know that also the stage of the, the chrysalis where that, that metamorphosis happens and the imaginal cells that kind of guide the formation of the caterpillar from the goo that, that the, that the, um, did I say, just say caterpillar? I'm going to say butterfly, yeah. butterfly yeah. Um, that the caterpillar becomes. Um, and I, I'm thinking that the hormones are like, our hormones are like those imaginal cells, just mm-hmm. guiding, guiding the transition. And so often I feel like we ourselves as women are pathologizing our own hormones. Mm-hmm. Like we're taking in the information we're getting from the outside and feel in, and being in an antagonistic relationship with our hormones. And what you're saying here is, is to really like surrender into and trust that, that these hormones are what are, they're navigating this, this transition and this transformation for us. Yes. Our, our bodies, I'm just so in awe of the human body and they're, they are so amazing and they are always moving toward health. And that's one thing that I really try to emphasize when I'm working with women, because often because menopause, perimenopause, the symptoms sneak up on us because we're all so busy, have so many things on our plate. We're not even thinking about that until or recognizing it often until it's really on us. You know, people come in just feeling like they're in the spin cycle. And I like to remind them, look, you've got this. You've been through other hormonal transitions, even though you may not remember them well during puberty. We usually don't have the analytic capacity to look at it from objectively and see what's going on. But certainly any woman who's ever been pregnant knows that um, your body is not yours and has completely change. So I tell people, you know, you've, you've done this before, try to remember what it was like for you and how you cope with that, how it felt, because always when you get to the next stage, you find your feet and become familiar with that next transition. Um, But something you just said, I think is really important. And I think it's that um, we need to remember that we're educating each other as well as women. It's not just the culture telling us that we're this or that, but it's the stories that we repeat and what we say about things that both reinforces it in us and in other women. And generally, it's not the stories you hear from pregnant women about how powerful they felt or how well the birth went, but it's, you know, how the baby almost died. Or we see that in movies all the time, people racing to the hospital in the cab, and there's always a big crisis. And same with our periods, same with menopause. And I think it's important that we you know, think twice about that. Our stories are very important and it's very important that we tell them. But I do think that women quite often are working out the trauma they still hold 
from some of the experiences they've been through in our medical system and for not being seen and not being recognized and not being supported. Yeah, I just saw an article today. I haven't read it yet, but it's in it's on the front page of the New York Times, on um, the online version at least, talking about how women often feel gaslit by the medical community. Mm. And yeah, it's 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 a big it's a that's another big topic in and of itself. Um, it, and it's real. Let me I've been on real. both sides of that. I've been in conventional medical um situations and I finally left about 23 24 years ago just couldn't do it anymore and I built my whole practice around giving women what they could no longer get in a medical setting which was time someone to really listen and hear their stories and to work with them where they wanted to go with their help to help support their intuition because um medicine these days is five minutes in a prescription. You've got five minutes of someone's time while they're typing into a computer until they have a code they can submit to be paid. And just so you feel like something's happened, you're usually handed a prescription. And studies have showed that about 50% of the time, women will not even fill prescriptions because they're not sure that the care provider even heard what they were saying and they're not sure it's right for them. So mm. we're really falling down in terms of that for sure. I have few precious relationships in my life that have weathered all the changes inner and outer that I've been through over the past couple of decades. Gratefully, yoga is one of those. And not only is it one of those, it's also one of the great loves of my life. First, it helped me to tone things down and stop pushing myself so hard by shifting from long distance running to Ashtanga yoga. Since then, it keeps showing me ways to soften, soften, and soften some more. These days, my practice hardly consists of advanced poses. Rather, it's a time that I take at the start of most days to listen to what my body needs and to move in ways that best meets those needs. Over the years, yoga has helped me to become more of who I really am and to face my life as it really is. And ultimately, this is the aim and fruit of a woman's yoga practice. Starting this fall, I'm leading my second online 200-hour Yoga Alliance Women's Yoga and Meditation Teacher Training. I used to teach this in person, but last year, the online version was such a success that I want to do it again. In it, I'll share the tenets of this form of practice, one that I truly haven't found offered anywhere else. I've offered shorter versions of this training in person over the past decade, and now I'm offering a more extended version that is 100% online. It combines women's yin and slow flow yoga, seasonal living, Buddhist meditation, sacred feminine dharma, internal family systems, as well as other tools for psychological healing and maturity. We'll meet for four three-day weekends between October and January, weekends that feel more like retreats. Registration opens this week for 10 days with some early bird discounts. So if you'd like to join us, you can get on the early notification list or head to womensyogateachertraining.com. That's womensyogateachertraining.com. 
I look forward to sharing this with you. And now back to today's conversation. I want to go back to something that, that you said on, on a couple of couple different levels. Just how one of the things that you ask women to reflect on is just how those earlier hormonal transitions, whether that was with beginning to menstruate or pregnancy or perimenopause, just how that was for them and how they got to the other side. But you say in your book, how just an inherent part of of these transitions is feeling like we're losing our footing Mm -hmm. and just validating that that's part of it. And there's nothing wrong if you feel like you're, you're losing your footing Mm -hmm. and to look back over time and see, oh yes, you felt that way before. And you found your ground again. Mm-hmm. And it's it's going to be both of those things. Yeah, I've always seen the transitions as a very powerful um, container for creating change in our lives, because everything's kind of thrown up in the air anyway. You know, we're we're in that mush that the caterpillar becomes before it becomes the butterfly, and in that mush, all of the you know, the connections, the tight junctures that we think we have, that this equals that, those things start to break up a little and become more fluid and more spacious. And I think if we put our attention there, we can really use these times to create change in a way that it's very difficult to do when we are solidly into the next pattern. It's like the whole being opens up and if we can set our intention, that can guide the way we reform. Right. Because once once we're in adulthood, there's not that many junctures where we can make those big sweeping changes that easily. Right. Yeah. We, we kind of get locked into these, these structures. And and I'm hearing you that this is this is a profound opportunity to to shift those bigger structures. Yes, I I really see it that way. And you dedicate different chapters to these different hormonal transition in a woman's life. And you talk about how understanding how those earlier transitions were will help us better navigate menopause. Can you talk to us more about this? Sure. Um, We bring whoever we are to our menopause. We bring our earlier experiences, our traumas, our identities as women, whatever coping skills we have, we bring with us whether or not we trust our bodies to take care of us and to move toward health or whether we see them always as betraying us. And and we are encouraged to think of our bodies as betraying us these days. I mean, our medicine, as I said, is all about pathology. And I'm old enough to remember when they started direct to consumer advertising for medications and over the counter things. And it's like there, a lot of us have come to a place where we see every little symptom as a harbinger of disease or of the body breaking down, but our body is always moving toward health. And when we have symptoms, it's very helpful to understand what the body's trying to tell you, what that conversation is, what the symptoms mean. And then you can take back control a little bit and go, oh, my body's telling me I need this. It's asking me for this. So if I get on board with my body and work toward that, 
then that helps me to feel less like I'm in the spin cycle and more like there's something I can do. So all of that and how we feel about ourselves as women, our sense of personal value and where that comes from within us, all of this becomes really huge at this time of life, especially as we're choosing to move forward. And how our brains are wired for stress, the level of stress and the lifestyles we built along the way really come into play here as well. So this is a continuum going all the way back and we bring all of it with us to menopause. And those things actually have a lot to do with shaping the menopause that we'll have. And let's, let's talk more about stress um, because I know we can't, we can't have a conversation about these transitions that we face as women and our hormones without also talking about how stress impacts them. Mm -hmm. And so what, what are the implications of stress during menopause? Um, Huge. Uh, It's the single most impactful Thing, factor as to what kind of a menopause a woman will experience. And this is why um, nature's plan at this point, as the ovaries begin to wind down, um, is that the adrenal glands and the fat cells are supposed to take over hormone production in the second half of life. And our adrenal glands are what um, mediate stress in the body. And so most of us as women in modern culture are arriving at menopause totally exhausted because we just put one more thing on our plate when it appears and needs doing and keep adding to that and adapting to that. And we don't even see it coming. I've had women so many times say, well, sure, I'm a bit stressed, but it's no worse than usual, you know, but all of a sudden I've missed a period or two and I can't sleep and my hair's falling out and I'm gaining weight and um, my mood is horrible. How can just missing a period or two cause all of that? And it's not the, the missed period that's causing that. It's that the whole mechanism that's supposed to be there to catch the ball isn't functioning because we arrive at menopause with such stressed adrenals. So the every it's the base of the pyramid and everything kind of comes back down to that. Um, our bodies are made to adapt. I mean, we're, that's our thing. You know, we arrived on the planet since then, our bodies have not changed much, but the way we live has changed quite a bit. And we need to be able to adapt to those changes. And part of the way that happens hormonally is that our hormones are all based on the cholesterol molecule and they're changed from one hormone to another, just by adding a little subgroup to that basic um, center, the cholesterol center. So, um, your estrogen can turn into progesterone, your progesterone can turn into cortisol, your cortisol can turn back into something else. It's very fluid depending on what the moment to moment needs of are the body. But the body is always going to prioritize survival 
over reproduction because if you're dead, it doesn't matter, right? So if we are stressed, literally our adrenals will steal our sex hormones, even if we're low in them and need them and turn them into stress hormones to deal with our stress needs. So if you are stressed, you know, you can take supplements till the cows come home. You can even take hormones, but they won't necessarily stay as the hormone you're taking. If you're stressed, your body's going to siphon that off and deal with your stress needs. So it's very important to prioritize that. And you also talk about good stress and bad stress Mm -hmm. and the importance to decipher between the two. Can you give us examples of good stress and bad stress? Sure. Um, Our bodies were kind of made in such a way that if we ran into a mastodon on the plane or a bear in the woods, you would have this huge tidal wave of stress hormones move through your body so that you could run faster, fight harder, climb a higher tree, and survive the encounter. And the difference between that and what we experience now is that usually after you survived the encounter, everything went back down to normal and you didn't run into the next mastodon 15 minutes later. But given that our bodies don't distinguish between the mastodon on the plane and you know, having deadlines at work, being stuck in traffic, being ill, having a fight with our partner, financial stress, stress is stress to the body. And fight or flight lasts two to three hours every time it gets kicked in. So we are often in modern life in a state of um, mild fight or flight, sometimes 24 hours a day. So the body's not distinguishing the why. And you can have a woman who um, loves her life and is living the kind of life that the marketing gurus tell us we should aspire to, you know, getting up at 5.30, hitting the gym, you know, fueled on her morning latte, heading to a job that she really loves, having a fast paced day, doing things that engage her in a positive way, meeting friends for dinner afterwards, you know, falling into bed at midnight. And she would say, oh, I love my life. This feels good because adrenaline, which is one of the main um, stress hormones, does feel good. (laughs) When you've got a little adrenaline running, you feel alert, you feel energetic, you feel clear-headed. You've got a woman, on the other hand, that may be a single mother working two jobs to try to support her family or a woman in an emotionally or physically abusive relationship. The body will see both kinds of stress the same because even the woman who loves her life is not getting the kind of sleep she needs. She's not getting the downtime she needs um, and she's on the go all the time. Now, the difference would be that the woman, the downtrodden woman would also carry what I think of as an epigenetic burden of that. She carries the trauma with her as well that gets um, coded into ourselves. And we we know now that trauma is passed down in the DNA. So that would be a difference between the good stressed woman and the bad stress, the 
bad stress woman would have that extra burden of the trauma, but to the body, both women would arrive at menopause with exhausted adrenals. Right. And this, this really points to, and also you're talking about a woman's life as a continuum, just women who are not yet in menopause or even not yet in perimenopause. Like I'm not in perimenopause yet. I'm 44. I know it's probably not too far away, but starting to look more upstream mm-hmm. um, or downstream rather um, at what's coming and starting to prepare for it. And so even, even if you're not going through menopause or perimenopause to even start taking these like stress inventories and asking these bigger questions to just help to prepare for this bigger transition later on, is that, is that something that you advocate or work with people on too? Absolutely. I would say that you are so smart (laughs) to be looking at this already because being proactive, putting things in place to address your stress, lifestyle issues, sleep, hormone balance ahead of time can have a significant impact on smoothing the way through menopause. And I've seen this over and over in my practice and it's much easier to impact these things now while you still have reserves than it is when you're deep in the spin cycle and in the middle of symptoms because things have already become so imbalanced. So you're really, really smart to do that. I mean, one of the very simple things a woman can do early on is to begin to create a rhythm in her life Um, because a lot of this is similar to a bank account. We build up the biochemicals in our body through our nutrition and and other things. And then we spend those um, doing the tasks that we do. And if there is a rhythm to your life where your body is, you know, relatively certain of when you're going to wake up, when you're going to go to bed, what times of day you tend to eat, when you tend to be more active, then it can have the appropriate amount of energy available for you at those times. Whereas if we're random all over the place with it, the body has to have higher amounts of energy sitting there waiting for you because it never knows what to expect. So that's a good way, just creating a rhythm to begin to conserve your energy and not overspend. Um, also getting sleep in order is a huge thing and that's much easier to do in perimenopause. In fact, even when women are deep into it, just changing that one thing, one small thing around their sleep has a huge ripple effect because it's in the deep, um, restorative part of our sleep that the adrenals replenish themselves. So, um, the cortisol production in the body, you know, rises to wake us up and then it's highest first thing in the morning, takes a steep drop at noon and then slowly tapers off until 10 or 10.30 at night. And if we stay up much later than 10.30 at night, our body thinks we need a second wind to do what we're doing. So it mounts fight or flight to give us that second wind. And we've all 
experience that when, you know, we're feeling really tired, but we just got to get this one more thing done. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're awake again. So if we can get to a rhythm where we're going to bed when our body is really at its lowest levels of cortisol, we're going to be sleeping deeper, sleeping longer, and having a more restorative sleep. Because if you go to sleep when your levels of cortisol are higher, a lot of people have trouble falling asleep then. But even if you fall asleep, they find that they wake up about three hours later or something and toss and turn and takes a while to get back to sleep again. And if you think about it, it makes sense. If you'd been you know, chased by the bear in the woods all day and you're exhausted and lay down to sleep, it's not going to be a deep restful sleep. You're sleeping with one eye open so that if that bear comes back, you can be up and out of there like a shot. So when we go to bed with higher levels of cortisol, we're just more aware. It's like sleeping with one eye open almost. So we're more aware of our partner snoring or the dog or cat at the door or the noise or a you know dream that might be a little disturbing so you know being off of devices for an hour hour and a half before going to bed makes a huge difference cuz they raise your cortisol levels um going to bed at a regular time or when your body feels really tired and not trying to push on through just doing these little things can make a big difference and they're easier to do leading up to perimenopause and menopause. So again, you're just so smart to be thinking about this. Yeah. And I've heard, I've often heard that our deepest, most restorative sleep happens between about nine or 10 at night and midnight. And I usually go to bed at, or by nine. And I, mm -hmm. I, Several months ago, I got an aura ring, which tracks my sleep and you know, the levels of sleep that I'm in. And it, it shows what level of sleep I'm in at different hours of the night. And it's always the deep sleep always happens on the app, you know, on my aura ring app mm -hmm. before midnight. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just so interesting to see that. And so I just think about like, oh, if I didn't if I didn't go to sleep early, I wouldn't be getting that deep sleep because it just doesn't happen later in the night. That's true. I mean, your cortisol levels are lowest, um, right around, like I said, 10, 10 30. So if you're going to bed at nine, you're taking total advantage of that. And so going back to this analogy, this metaphor of the of the caterpillar and the butterfly. Ultimately, when we're talking about menopause, the butterfly is the archetype of the wise woman. And you end your book talking about this archetype. How do you see this archetype functioning, expressing itself in today's world? And like, what are, what are the possibilities and limitations for her in our future? Well, I think in a lot of ways, it's up to us, those of us that are making this transition and become coming wise women now to chart that course, because other than in tribal societies, there, there hasn't been much of a role for that, certainly not in Western culture. Um, 
in more primitive or tribal societies that where elder women were revered, they were really the ones often that decided when the tribe would go to war or who would marry whom or adjudicated, you know, issues that would come up because it was recognized that um, they had a perspective and they had a wisdom that would really serve that as opposed to younger people who are still much more hormonally driven. Um, I would say that a wise woman owns herself and lives her life consistent with her intentions. Um, and generally also, I think, tends to have, for lack of a better word, the good of the tribe in mind. Um, so like I said, in other cultures, this was used and revered. But for instance, you look around now um, at the state of the world and state of our economies and where old white men have led us. And I have to believe there's a better way. I mean, when you've grown a child in your body, your first instinct is not to go to war when there's a disagreement. So I think we need the voices of mature women more than ever now. And I would like to see the wise woman take her place in the world. I don't in any way disrespect men. And I believe we need the perspectives of both men and women when we're looking at issues. But up until now, we haven't really had that. It's been a very patriarchal culture and the women who have entered the halls of power have had to act like men in order to be accepted really. Their feminine wisdom wasn't respected. So this isn't to say that wise women need to take on big issues or public office necessarily. I mean, bringing presence and nurturing to one's family or community is very powerful and has a, a huge ripple effect. Um, I think a lot about the fact that my generation is really the last to grow up without devices and without living on the internet. And we, we grew up interacting one-on-one -on -one and having face-to-face -face conversations, uh, writing letters, working side by side. And there's a type of presence that comes with that that we're losing in our modern world. It, for instance, it upsets me greatly when I see a toddler trying to get its mother's attention and the mom being so glued to her phone that she doesn't even hear the child. Um, babies are being given devices now to quiet them down. And, and this changes the brain and trains it along certain pathways. So as wise women, I think we can offer children and young people and those that we're mentoring us, that we're mentoring behind us we can give them that experience of a kind of presence and attention that's fading away because we remember that and we're wired for that. Um, we can encourage children's connection to the natural world because that's what they're supposed to be doing when they're young is exploring nature and how they're connected to it. So 
I say go out into the woods, build fairy houses. Um, you know, I think there's just so much. It's a perspective that we can bring. And I think, um, and I do give a couple of examples in the book of women ha that have really taken these qualities into the world and, and done something with them, you know, so. Um, but I think it's whatever we want to make it. And I believe each woman, as she goes through this transition, if she does the work to come into present time and become authentic and know what's real for her now, she'll also know what her passion is going forward and what she wants to give her wisdom energy to for the last arc of her life. And whatever that is, she should do it. And I think the qualities that we bring to it could have a, a very positive effect. And Susan, just to backtrack a little bit, you know, when you spoke about how this transition is a time to also make bigger, more sweeping changes in one's life. And in the book, you talk about them as midlife course corrections. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering just how, how is your menopausal journey and what sort of big shifts or course corrections did you make? Well, I had, um, I had a bit of a mishmash cause I didn't have my daughter until I was a couple months short of 45. So, um, I was going through, you know, I had my daughter nurse for a couple of years and then it was like another year and a half later, two years that I went through menopause. So, I was also raising a toddler at the same time I was doing it. And I was in a new community then. And one of the things that I did was to, and a lot of women do this naturally, I think, and don't realize really what they're doing. But I went back through my whole life. I realized that my community up here only knew me as um my daughter's mother and the earth mother and the women's health provider and that sort of thing. Whereas in my earlier life, I had spent many years in the theater and singing and being part of a modern dance troupe and um, many things that no one here knew anything about. And so I went through my life, I went through old photographs and gathered some women together and just told the story of my life and showed them pictures um, and kind of brought it up to present time. And I think it's really important to recognize the things that you can celebrate that you did do that you wanted to, or that fate brought your way and you took advantage of. It's important to mourn the things that you always wanted that didn't particularly happen. And then I think it's important to make vows in a way to the second half of your life, which, you know, is what I did. Just what do you want to direct that energy toward? And as time has passed, you know, my work shifted. Um, I began to write more and things that I didn't have time to do when I was raising a young child. And how was it for you going through menopause when you, when you had a young child? Cause I know that's just common now with women having children later. 
Well, it, it's difficult. You know, I was giving a workshop last night and one of the women was talking about going through menopause with a teenage daughter going through puberty. And I went, yeah, that's kind of the same, but in a different way as going toddlers and teenagers, they're kind of the same, you know? So um, I felt like I was a little more irritable sometimes, but what it did was it made me so clear to um, to be transparent. And if I would find myself snapping or just reacting to something that I might have had a more measured response to at some other point, I would just claim it and own it and apologize. And that way, my daughter grew up knowing that I was fully human as well. Um, we all make mistakes. And if we can recognize it and speak that truth and and apologize that we don't need to hold on to it. So um, emotions were allowed <laughs> in our house from both of us. So I would say that. Yeah. And what what is your current growing edge now at this stage in your continuum as a woman? My growing edge, I would have to say two things. One of them the bigger one is uh, becoming more public. I'm actually a very private person. And <laughs> so putting my book out there, speaking from my heart, talking more um, in public is an edge for me and I'm stepping up to it. And um, I see it as a good thing. My other edge is to learn to use social media. I mean, high speed internet wasn't even in regular use till I was around 50. And I was a late adopter. So I only learned what I needed to learn at each juncture of my life to do what I needed to do. And um, now I need to learn more. <laughs> so I guess those two things. Well, I hear that that's an edge and I'm, I'm glad just for the, the sake of us to, to learn from you that you are becoming more public and <laughs> I just really want to advocate for women, even, and especially if you're not going through menopause yet to get this book, making sense of menopause and just to start to reflect on these things. And so Susan, in addition to your book, is there anything else or um, anything else you'd like to share that you have going on or where can you direct listeners to learn more about you and your work? Um, yeah, I think what you just said is very important. I mean, the, the title of the book is pretty generic. So I think sometimes women who are no longer having symptoms or hot flashes feel like, oh, been there, done that. I don't need to read this because they assume it'll be a book about how to take care of your hot flashes, which is what most menopause books are about. And women who are younger and not quite there yet think, oh, menopause, I don't need that. <laughs> so um, really, I feel like the book could be very useful for women anywhere from age 30 to 75, because it does look at the continuum of our lives as women and helps us learn to prepare and then learn even once we're through it, how to consolidate the gold of our life really so that um, we can integrate all of that. And I guess in terms of what else I might like to share, 
just to say to be proactive about it, say yes to menopause when it comes and don't fear it, you know, don't buy into that cultural myth that your life is over. Start now to value your life and your body and the emotional and spiritual parts of yourself and to prioritize pleasure. And I'm not just talking about sexual pleasure, although that is important too, but find what gives you joy and move toward that because that changes everything in our body. You know, it changes our neurotransmitters. It changes our physicality. It changes everything. So um, that's important. And in terms of people want to learn what's going on with me, I would say to visit my website, which is makingsenseofmenopause.com. And I blog there and I encourage women if there's something they want to hear about or to let me know. And I respond to that and we'll look into it, write about it, whatever. And it also, um, there's a page that lets people know if they're interested, what I'm up to or where I'm speaking, that sort of thing. Well, thank you so much, Susan, not only for your time today, but your service to women. It's very inspiring and very needed. Well, I'm so happy to be here. It's just wonderful to talk with you and I appreciate you asking me. Thank you for being here today. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you could take a moment to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That is the best way to support me in continuing on with this podcast and also to support other women in finding this, other women who may find this beneficial for their own lives. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're not already signed up for my newsletter, Monthly Insights, which I've been sending out now for almost 20 years, I welcome you to join me and a community of like-hearted women from around the world there. You can subscribe at my website, sarahavonstover.com. Until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.